Anthony Frieda is a Long Island, New York-based illustrator, activist, and educator. Frieda works as an editorial illustrator, visual political activist, and as part of the adjunct faculty of the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. In addition to many mainstream clients such as Time, The New Yorker, Rolling Stone, and The New York Times, he also contributes to many alternative news websites and publications such as Code Pink, Activist Post, Washington's Blog, Global Research, Cindy Sheehan's The Soapbox, and The Trends Journal. In 2006, the Village Voice commissioned Frida to illustrate a story about people who challenged the official 9-11 narrative. The artwork has since become part of the permanent collection of the U.S. National September 11th Museum in New York. Frida's work has been selected to be included in the following international illustration competitions, Society of Illustrators, American Illustration, Communication Arts, Society of Publication Designers, Print, and Art Directors Club. You can find out more about Anthony at his website, anthonyfrida.com. On Facebook, you can find him under Anthony Frida Studio or on Instagram at Anthony Frida Art. Welcome, Anthony Frida. Thank you, Isaac. Great to be here. Really nice to have you. So I became aware of your artwork. I don't even remember exactly when. It was a long time ago, and it was via Facebook. So I continued to follow your work on Facebook, and some were much more hard-hitting for me personally than others, and I guess that goes with all art. Some were more apropos to times in society when certain things seem to be prevalent. Um, you, you know, just to name like one in particular that always was one of my favorites. It's so simple, and it's a sardonic satirization of our, uh, what I would call our national hypocrisy in regards to violence. So personally, I feel that the foundation of our national culture is violence. And it's, it's hard to not see that, especially when you look at the fact that the grand majority of the discretionary federal budget goes to the Department of Defense, always, and that number only increases. So Americans seem to be very fine with us killing people that are innocent elsewhere, as long as we don't have to look at it or deal with it. But then when it comes to gun violence, ho, 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 everybody's very righteous. And so one of your pieces of art depicted that. It was a school teacher mirrored. So on one hand, she was saying drones is good violence. The guns are bad violence. So do you have a name for that one in particular, just so I don't keep referencing it obliquely? I don't think I named that one. I did that a while ago. But yeah, that always struck me. I mean, you just said it very succinctly, perfectly. Um, you know, violence is violence. Um, and uh, we have this double standard in our culture about a lot of things. But um, that's, 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 that's a big part of what I do in my work, try to point out hypocrisy and double standard. You know, not that I'm some virtuous saint, believe me, I'm not. But um, I try to keep, you know, try to live a good life. So it, it kind of, when, when you are a, um, a social critic, um, in a way it, it forces you to, to be more self um, analytical, introspective. So you're not just always criticizing the outside world or others. You're, you're able to look in the mirror and see what, you know, how you're contributing to any societal ills or also just in your own personal life, you know, you're really living up to a standard where you can make these comments about society and about politicians and about public figures. And um, so in a way it keeps you, keeps you honest and it keeps you, you know, uh, on a morally straight path. Um, so, you, so you don't become a hypocrite or you don't um, live a hypocritical life or, um, you know, staring into the abyss, become the abyss, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, uh, to answer your question, I didn't have a title for that one. The Fashion Institute of Technology. So you're an adjunct professor, is that right? Yes. Part of your art is education. What are you teaching there? I teach illustration um, appropriately. I'm primarily an illustrator and um, my area of expertise, I would say. And uh, so editorial illustration uh, for magazines and online publications and uh, conceptual illustration. I've taught a number of different classes, um, principles of illustration, um, visual communication. Uh, this semester I'm teaching um, a senior illustration workshop. So um, it's a very advanced class for kids, basically preparing them to make the transition from academic world to the professional world. Uh, and I just, for the first time I just taught um, my classes online last semester, which was interesting um, experience. Uh, and there's pros and cons to that, but um, yeah, we don't know what's gonna happen next semester yet. We haven't been told, so we'll see how that works out. But it's, um, it's a challenge and the students find it stressful, but um, I, you know, it's, like I said, there's pros and cons. Uh, I'm an illustration teacher, basically. Now, education, I'm assuming, has not been how you got into art. It, it was a side effect of being an artist, I think, right? Yeah, well, I, I mean, it's, I went to art school, went to Pratt in Brooklyn, and um, when I got out in the real world, I really felt like I wasn't prepared, and I was overwhelmed, and I felt kind of cheated after four years of school. I was never really prepared for, for what this career entails. I mean, you know, they teach you how to draw and paint and think like an illustrator, which is great, but there's a lot more practical concerns. Um, and I learned those the hard way, you know, school of hard knocks. Um, and I always said something I'd like to give back and, and, and give these, give our students the benefit of my knowledge. Um, so maybe they won't have to learn it the hard way like I did. So it's really giving back and it really, it's fulfilling to me to help these kids and to and to inspire them. I mean, to to bring out the best work that they're capable of because they don't even know sometimes what they're capable of. So to push them to create the best work they're capable of, and um, and so that you get these amazing results, you know. So I mean, I'm as part motivational speaker and part art teacher. You know, it's. Yeah and part um, psychologist even, you know, it's, uh, it's a lot of different hats you're wearing when you're teaching young kids and um, uh, at this very intense period of their life. Uh, but I love it, I really do. I really, um, it's one of my favorite parts of my life. What's your outlook as an educator with the younger generation? So as an editorial illustrator, you, are commenting on society. You get stories about, I mean, I've got stories about COVID, about race wars, about, I mean, you're getting stories about what's happening in the world because that's what uh, the media is reflecting, right? So I try to encourage my students to, the more personal you can make it, like you said, a mission, if you have a mission, if you have a cause that you're personally invested in or you care about, um, as an artist, you have an opportunity to make that connection between your cause and, and your art. And those are the, to me, the deepest connections you can make. And that, if you have a personal, you know, interest or passion, you can imbue your art with that. 
that's the most powerful art you're going to get. So I always try to get my students, you know, I ask them, such as giving an assignment, I try to find out personally, what do you care about? What do you want to say? What do, what do you think is important? What do you want other people to know about? You know, or do you want some people to know about you? Is there anything, I mean, what interests you? Because I can always tell if an artist was painting something that they were interested in, or if they were painting something that they thought had a place in the market. So it's a huge difference. You know, you can put your life force into something that um, you care about, something you're personally connected to. or And if you don't, it's um, you're kind of going through the motions. So sometimes uh, the great illustrator Baron Story said, sometimes illustrators are like whores faking orgasms, um, which is... Uh, crass but it's it gets on it gets to, to the heart of the matter you know um and you don't want to be like that you want you wanted something genuine something authentic and i think people see that anyway people are hungry for something real and all the age of you know just fake news and artificial newscasters and canned talking points and People connect with something real. You know, the old dinosaur media is, unfortunately, they still have a lot of power, as we see with this, the way they've made everybody hysterical over COVID. And um, I don't think they're helping any situation. I think they kind of exacerbate every social ill. Just It's just built into the, the delivery method, the programming. Um, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> I don't want to go there. but. Um, as far as an artist, like I say, connecting something that something you care about, putting your life force into, and then your love of that that subject, um, it shows and it and it resonates with the viewer, and they know it. They know it just looking at it instinctively. Instinctively, they know if you if you put some real time and energy and life force into something, or if you just phoned it in. Um, so yeah, I encourage them to make those make those connections with their art. I think it's really important, um, and I think that's a big part of being an artist. You know, what do you got to say? It's like to me, I was never the greatest draftsman or painter. You know, I, so I had I had to find my strength was more not as a technical virtuoso, but as um, someone who could think conceptually and try to say things with um, passion, but also a little bit of humor and dark humor and uh, uh, make it palatable in a way, because if, you, if you're talking about subjects like war and, and justice and all these other very serious topics, um, you gotta temper it with humor, you know, otherwise it just gets, it's very, it's too dense and it turns people off and it's, um, it's like Oscar Wilde said, if you're going to tell somebody uh, the truth, make them laugh. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I share that that uh, frustration of, you know, there, there are things that, that happen that are so serious on such a regular basis now. When you find out that XYZ thing happened, you know, Black Lives Matter is a perfect example that you find out that so-and-so was killed and they were in their own apartment and they weren't doing anything, but it was a no knock thing. Um, the appropriate reaction is what the fuck? <laughs> but some people are just like, well, let's look at the whole story. What? What? There's some kind of quote that was about um, my, my 
desire to be well informed is at odds with my desire to be sane and happy, something like that. Yeah. I, I was a political, political activist for a long time back home in San Diego, what I call home. I was becoming a very unhappy human being. And like a lot of activists, you go so full force that eventually you burn yourself out and you're looking for results. You're like, well, nothing's changing even though I'm lobbying and nothing's changing even though I'm marching and contributing to anti-war efforts and finding out that those you know, the move ons and, and et cetera, they didn't really care about the war. They cared about a Republican being the one leading the war because once it was, a, was Democrat, once it was a Democrat, they were perfectly fine with war. That was a big problem. Yeah. I was involved with the anti-war movement and I still am, but I worked with Cindy Sheehan and uh, she couldn't get three people together for a rally in the eight years Obama was in. But so, you know, when he was destroying Libya, that nobody cared. So it was a partisanship, you know, makes you myopic and, half blind to one eye, you know. So my question for you, um, being someone who is an activist, is when the Black Lives Matter thing happened and George Floyd and, and then the protest, I was so happy that people were finally being emotionally unhinged enough to get out there and, and march. And, and just because I don't know what else to do, like, and you've given me all this time off to not work. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, so I was so encouraged by that. that now, In New York, that's the only thing you could do. Everything else is closed. Mm -hmm. Yep. But I, eventually I was just this wild man on Facebook, just posting everything that I felt was important, losing myself in the process, not being centered. I'm a spiritual person. So being centered is important to me. And then I, I saw this quote about inner peace and I, I shared it. And I said, basically that like, I still feel like I have inner peace, but I allow myself to become unglued. Yeah. Um, and it's, so it's not like I have inner turmoil. I have, I know who I am and I know what I call God and, and my place. I know that, that space, that my core, but how do I maintain really being at peace in the middle of all this stuff? Is that a struggle for you as someone who is aware of what's going on, but also wanting to, to be able to just not go crazy? I mean, yeah, no, you do. You get, I mean, when you're in this stuff, it's so dark, a lot of it. And, and the more you, I mean, I'm sure you've gone down a lot of rabbit trails, just investigations into, into history and into deep state and into what's really going on, the things you're not going to hear on CNN. Uh, I mean, it's just shocking and it's just devastating. And it's, um, um, it's way worse than you think, you know. They didn't teach you this stuff in high school, which, you know, things that are going on, the, the manipulations, you know, Operation Mockingbird, uh, a lot of um, complicity between the deep state and the media. And um, it's just so undemocratic and it's so opaque and there's no transparency to so much of what goes on that we're, that's not shared with us. So there are whistleblowers and there are people that, um, you know, risk everything to get this information out there. Um, I, I had the great pleasure of meeting William Binney, who was really the first NSA um, whistleblower and he quit because he said, Dave, you guys are breaking the law. This is illegal surveillance. And, to, and for his troubles, they SWAT teamed his house and tried to falsely charge him. Um, there's a great movie, The Good American, about him. But um, just a sweet man, and just he tells you these stories, and you cannot believe. How, I mean, it's a completely criminal, and it's beyond Democrat, Republican. It's just they're all guilty. In the last, since 2000, 
of massive crimes. And I mean everybody in Congress. I mean, they sign off to things that are just completely illegal and across the board. Um, and he lays it out very, you know, from a legal standpoint. And uh, it just, it just, it's shocking. And, it, and you, like you said, what do you do with this information? You can go crazy or you go on Facebook and scream about it. Well, you get an argument with your friends at the bar. It's like, that's totally wasted effort. So I channel that into my art. And that to me is a catharsis. The act of creation itself is an act of hope. But it also is a way to, when you're transforming these negative emotions into something creative, you know, there's a cathartic process. And on the end, you can take anger and hopefully trans and pity and transform it into something that's positive like hope. But Spirituality is key too. I agree with you. You have to have a spiritual component in your life. I mean, I didn't for a long time and I was really unhappy. It wasn't until I, I reconnected with that spiritual part that's in all of us. Um, instead of denying it, I embraced it and I, um, it puts things in perspective. So you have the temporal plane and you have the spiritual plane and, and you start to see that the vastness of it and you start to see this idea that you're connected to a, the universe which is this cosmic consciousness and you're a fragment of it and if you want to call it god or cosmic consciousness whatever you want to call it it is you and you are it so we're part of something much bigger than all of the insanity going on right in front of us and um and also when you study history you see you get perspective on just how insane things can get and even though they seem really crazy right now, it's like, it's been a lot worse for a lot, a lot of people. Um, so that gives you perspective too. But, um, but you need, you, you know, there has to be an ebb and flow, right? You got to keep your mind right. You have to, you know, meditation is important and uh, communing with nature and breathing. And there's a lot of different things you can do, you know, whatever works for you personally. But, um, but yeah, you got to, and you got to get offline sometimes too. If you just, you know, if you're living in front of a, a screen, day and night, you're going to lose it. I mean, they, they, the thousands of studies now, very clear, the science is in, you know, the more time you spend on a screen, the more depressed you get. The more time you spend on social media, the more depressed you get. So there's a direct correlation there. So we're not designed to be in front of screens. This is not, you know, this is something very new to us as a species. And we're still trying to obviously have growing pains trying to figure out how to work it. We're all on Facebook screaming at each other. It's just not a natural way for us to communicate. And uh, we all know the problems that are inherent, but also in the way that they were designed. I think they were designed, like the Facebooks, designed to exploit human frailties and to give them a place where they can flourish. And they, and they admitted it. You know, um, some, uh, some of the people that designed those systems admitted they were um, looking to get people addicted like, like you would in a if you were designing a uh, slot machine, you know, so there's a lot of problems that are built into the whole design that are very difficult to reverse now because it's in the architecture of the systems that we all use. So, but that, there's another, there's, there's one poetic justice I love is using Facebook to, to call out Zuckerberg or to, you know, call talk about what I was just talking about. I mean, to me, that's just, that's poetic justice. Using these the systems and platforms designed to, I, I think, hurt humanity in a lot of ways to expose the fact that that's what they're doing. So, when I first started coming to New York for auditions and 
um, you know, little commercials or industrials and stuff like that. Before I, I decided this is where I need to be, I was driving in New York. First of all, I hated New York City until I stopped driving in it. Because if you're, <laughs> I know, <laughs> it's a good way. I'm a peaceful person. I straight up got out of my car once and was ready to beat the crap out of somebody behind me. Like that's what New York did to me. But, um, but once I started realizing that that's why God created Newark, because there's a train you can take you to New York, yeah. it got really clear to me that New York City has got a solid grasp of fascism because there's cameras everywhere. To yeah. watch, And so the NYPD can see what you're doing at every moment anywhere, aside from the fact that we carry our phones. And if someone really wanted to find us and, you know, know where we were, what we we're up to, it would be easy to do so. But, but New York makes it a lot easier. Oh, yeah. And so this is home to you. This is what you've always known is this culture. Well, I was always interested in history and I was um, just naturally gifted as an artist. It's just something I could do you know i was the kid who was the best in the art class in high school not that i was some genius or anything but i was you know in my little high school i was kids would you know ask me to do drawings for them and my first you know paid drawing was probably i was 10 or something yeah some kid asked me to draw something for him and gave me like 50 cents or something so uh and i would draw on my notebooks and i would draw on my desk and i would I was always, and I've made commentaries about certain things, and but I was always interested in history, and I was always interested in this. For some reason, just dystopian sci-fi. Just, I mean, I just latched onto that, you know, 1984 and um, Brave New World, and um, a bunch of other ones that I just really got into at a really young age, just because I was. I was always interested in what the future held for us. And I was always terrified of the prospect that it might be something that's horrible, like these books are all saying. And that if there is a possibility of that, then we need to warn people. And so I, I thought about being um, basically an artist version of, you know, George Orwell, like, you know, what he was, I mean, I think, I think that whole book was a warning to humanity. And not an instruction manual, which some people are using it for. But <laughs> um, so I wanted to do the same thing with my art. And um, I mean, that book is just, I mean, it's lost its potency comparisons to it just because it's been overdone so many times. People use the term 1984, but we're living it now. I mean, COVID-1984 is here where they have the slogans and nothing makes sense and everything's contradictory and everything doesn't add up two plus two equals five and one day the masks are good one day the masks are bad and it's a, and social distancing is completely you know you're going to die if you don't social distance but then we have these protests and everybody's tens of thousands of people cramped together and that's fine and wait last week you said if i did that we were all going to die and, and nobody dies so it's, like, it's just i mean to me it's almost it's like a confusion technique where you can you know uh milton erickson the uh psychologists came up with this technique where you you confuse somebody and people hate being confused so much that the first thing after being confused whatever idea you put out there that makes sense they latch on to so it's a technique of getting somebody to accept a message um using this confusion method and i feel like it's mass confusion method going on right now 
Um, and the idea of the new normal, I mean, that's all these terms, is like they're, they're straight out of uh, Orwell. I mean, it's crazy, you know? Uh, that book was just so prescient and, um, and the surveillance with the camera, I mean, in our homes, we have cameras in our homes, <laughs> we have little monitoring devices, they're everywhere. And um, they didn't come by fiat, they came by choice, you know, they because they, one thing he didn't think of was attaching entertainment to them. And that was a brilliant way to get them in your house. And now, you know, first it's entertainment, and now it's public health, right? You have to give up your privacy and your rights for the greater public good. I'm not buying it, but um, I don't know if you've read about contact tracing, but that's a whole other story, but it's terrifying. <laughs> and it's worse than 1984. It, they, basically, you're, if you test positive, you are owned by the state. You are their prisoner for the rest of your life, and you do what they say, and that's it. Um, you lose every right, and it's madness, but it's happening right now. It's not a book anymore in the future. Uh, so I was always obsessed with that, and I always just wanted to get on that train and warning people that let's not go down this path, you know. And there was a point like where I thought things were going to be really positive. I remember I used to read Omni magazine back in like the eighties and nineties. And it was all, it was a futurist, but it was mostly positive futures. You know, some of the more positive uh, sci-fi writers like uh, Isaac Asimov and a uh, few of the other guys that were envisioning these more positive technological utopias, you know, and then once we got here, I was, it's very, I was very disappointed in <laughs> the 21st century, you know. I mean, it's just not what we were promised, you know. We're just, yeah. I mean. Instead of flying cars, we're, we're still saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't kill black people for no reason, and maybe we shouldn't be spending the grand majority of our money on military. Maybe, like, it, we're not living in the euphoric, utopian society that we kind of, a lot of us were thinking of anyway. Yeah, no, and the big and yeah, the big the big bad pictures haven't changed, and then and then we're all fighting over everything just electronically. Just it facilitates our. I mean, it's the, it's 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 ironic in so many ways. We're we're more connected yet more alienated at the same time, and um, that paradox is just fascinating to me. So I mean, these are all the issues I talk about in my work, and. Um, it's always changing, so I have an endless supply of material. And uh, but there are these themes: these themes of privacy, of personal liberty, and of justice, and social justice, and war and peace. These themes don't seem to ever go away. Unfortunately, I can and and the symbology just changes with each each new um, crisis. So I can just employ these new icon uh, icons into my artwork, but the themes remain the same. So art entered your life at a very early age. When did the political awareness start to take shape? I don't know. I was always interested in it. Like, I remember collecting, I would collect the um, editorial cartoons. At one point I thought I wanted to be an editorial cartoonist. And I've done some of that, but there's something about cartoons that just, um, I don't, it's, you know, when you have to put bubbles with people saying things, it's, it's not really visual art as much anymore. And it becomes too literal and too specific. You know, I want things that might have more than one meeting. And I want the viewer 
I want the viewer to be engaged. I want the viewer to have to bring like if I show a lot of my work to people and ask them what they think, I'll get totally different points of view. So I want it to be a conversation, not just a lecture. You know, like this is what do you think this means? And um, and look, what is it? You know, and, and people tell me things about my work that I never thought of, which I love because I wasn't thinking that, but they were. So it it stirred something in their imagination, and I love that, and I love that it can have multiple interpretations rather than me just saying this is what it means you know you know as an artist you're trying to balance clarity and mystery and if, if it if it's too clear then it's too much clarity it becomes banal and boring and predictable right but if it's too mysterious then it's in the realm of fine art where it's it's not going to work for political art because nobody knows what the hell you're trying to say so <laughs> um so you have to find that balance and i think that's what i'm trying to do but specifically I didn't really get hardcore um, political with my art until 9-11. I mean, before that, I was commenting on school shootings a lot. But then 9-11, I saw it happen from my apartment, and it changed my focus, and it made me go down some rabbit holes. Uh, and I haven't come out of the hole since, <laughs> for good or bad, probably both. Yeah, I, that's one of the other things that you and I uh, – have in common. I was politically, politically aware to a degree until 9-11, but that is when I started to say, like, what's happening? I need to know what's... Somewhere this started before buildings were being blown up and people were jumping out of the windows. Like, what... How does this happen? And so, I mean, that's when my activism really, like, went into overdrive and started to, to take over my life, really. And some of the people that you, are, that you and I also have in common, although I've not worked with them, um, with the exception of donations or some kind of support are Code Pink and Cindy Sheehan. Um, nothing but respect for Cindy, what she's chosen to do with her life since her son was needlessly killed. And Code Pink, I've got nothing but respect for them. I mean, going in, getting arrested like, like any good activist would uh, because it's gonna make a statement. Obama says, hey, insurance companies, how should we write this new healthcare? Uh, tell me, because we're going to make sure that there's no public option at all. It's going to make sure that it's written the way you want it to. Code pink right in there. Like, hey, what about Medicare for all? What about single payer? Like, uh, could we please arrest them? Because we're doing business. Yeah. Um, so I'm glad that you and I have those in common. And, uh, and I'm glad that they are selfless enough to do what they're doing. They got guts. Most definitely. And they, like, you know, now it's, like, very popular, but they, you know, they were doing it when it wasn't very popular, and you weren't making friends doing it, and you were getting arrested, and it wasn't fun, but they kept, they were consistent, they were, with their message, morally consistent, if it doesn't matter if it was a, a red president or a blue president, they were consistent, so not many people are, so yeah, you're, you're right, they need, they need respect for that. Absolutely, uh, because they're just doing what's, what's right, and that's, you know, that's something that I, I've personally struggled with is that it's, I, it seems to me that some of the root of our problems is, is that the only way people could fall for so much stuff, I think, is if they really don't know right from wrong. They have no moral barometer. And I, I don't know how that is possible. I don't know. There are some spiritual beliefs that, that say your belief in morality is a, is a sign of your, uh, your immaturity. And that there's no such thing as as morals. Yeah. Um, I have a problem a problem 
you know, subscribing to that because it does seem to me that there, there's obviously right and wrong. You probably, we should all agree you shouldn't rape children, right? Can we agree that's wrong? Yeah. Can, we, can we agree that like being good to one another is good? Like, I think that there are certain things that are clearly right or wrong. Absolutely, it's natural law. Um, I don't know if you, you know who Mark Passio is? I don't. He's done, you watch some great presentations he's done on natural law. So natural law, he says, is just the basic guiding principles of the universe. And it definitely is right and wrong. And basically wrong is anytime you harm another person. That's it. You have no right in, under any circumstance to harm another person. Um, but you have the right to do anything up to that point. So uh, it's pretty simple stuff, you know, like the, like the golden rule, basically. I know what you're talking about. I don't, I don't ascribe to that. I mean, there is, there is right and wrong. There is polarity. And maybe there's some place in the future where we get beyond polarity and we get beyond right and wrong, good and evil. I don't know, but we're a long way from that. I mean, there is wrong and there it is black and white, some of it. There's some gray areas, but, and there's things that can be debated, which is constantly all doing, but, and this can be different points of view, but there's some things that are just straight up wrong. And that's the things that we like to call out because um, I think that's incumbent on artists. I think part of what you do, I mean, it's funny because a lot of artists I know were never political until recently. Now they're all political, right? Every artist I know, Never did anything political. They're all political artists now. So it's interesting. Um, kind of a crowded field. It used to be a pretty lonely field, but not anymore. Uh, this is an open-ended question. It's, it's very vague, but like, what is your artistic vision? Knowing what your spiritual outlook is, your political outlook, uh, the, the fact that you want to help guide a younger generation into art. What, what is that vision? My goal is to take these ideas of peace and individual liberty and freedom and human dignity and free humanity and um and give people alternative ways of, of looking at things rather than this uh, opposition to the juggernaut of mainstream uh groupthink and the uniformity of messaging um i'm not just a non-conformist i'm an anti-conformist i think conformity is the enemy of uh, creativity and it's the enemy of of humanity it's the enemy to free speech and um i think uh we need different voices we need alternative voices we don't need to censor them all this censorship is anathema to liberty anathema to human progress and human freedom let everybody speak if you don't like what they have to say then use your speech to do so to tell them and to have them make a better argument um so i I'm a voice for free freedom, for free humanity. And everything I do is towards that end. And, you know, this is, this is what I'm dedicated to. Um, so we don't get these dystopian futures that we talked about before, which we're about this close to, <laughs> to getting. So maybe, let's, maybe we have a chance to save humanity and pull things back from the brink. But we are at the brink, baby. Most definitely. That was beautifully said, Anthony. Uh, so I, I thank you so much, brother. This has been thank a you. real, real treat for me. Oh, my, me too, man. Thank, I, you look familiar. I must have seen you some, on something. Uh, I was a busy actor. Last year I did, <laughs> I did, I completed 43 projects last year in New York. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely seen you.
but um, I'm gonna I'm gonna check out more of your work. But thank you so much for everything you're doing, and um, great to meet you, man. Likewise, and maybe we can have you on one of our traditional episodes sometime to really talk about life stuff. That'd be fun. Okay, take care, guys. Thank you, Anthony.